This is Aspire, Arc Street Public Radio, a content-driven platform broadcasting interviews from our Innovate, Innovate Media, Innovate CSR, and Innovate Under 30 podcast series. Aspire gives public voice to socially conscious and forward-thinking leaders within the nonprofit and for-profit sectors, academia, journalism, and social entrepreneurship. Today, our guest is the award-winning journalist, Eric Weiner, author of the critically acclaimed books, Geography of Bliss and Man Seeks God. Eric is a graduate of the University of Maryland and was a Knight Journalism Fellow at Stanford. He spent many years as NPR's first full-time correspondent in India and then continued on to posts in Jerusalem and Tokyo. He has reported for more than 30 countries all over the world and is a regular contributor to the New York Times, the Washington Post, Slate, the Los Angeles Times, and NPR. Eric's work as a foreign correspondent eventually led to his first book, Geography of Bliss, a New York Times bestseller that has been translated into 18 languages, and also his latest book, Man Seeks God, his journey investigating spiritual and religious affiliations from every corner of the earth. Eric was recently invited to speak at the Ashoka Future Forum in 2013 to discuss how geography and place inspire creativity and deep reflection. Eric, thank you so much for joining our conversation today. It's my pleasure, David. Happy to be here. Great. I'd like to begin by asking you some questions about your early life. We love to explore, you know, how people's uh, early experiences shape their journey. And I understand uh, there's a funny story about you running away from home uh, as a boy. And um, I wonder if you could uh, talk a little bit about that and also about your early interest uh, as an adolescent in uh, becoming a foreign correspondent and tell us, you know, how these uh, formative experiences later shaped your interest in journalism and, if I may say so, uh, led to your development as a philosopher. Okay. Well, that boy, philosopher, that's a big big title. Thank you very much. Um, I didn't know there were any, any philosophers anymore. I guess there are. Um, yeah, well, I was I was living in uh, in Baltimore County, uh, a place called Towson, Maryland, and uh, at age five, I uh, developed a serious case of wanderlust and decided I just had to go out and explore the world out there, and uh, and so I, I dragged my my friend Drew along, uh, who was a reluctant uh, participant, and we went. Uh, and explored and got a good mile or two away from home, which is pretty far for a five-year-old. You know, <laughs> the police uh, picked us up and decided that uh, they would cut short uh, the great adventure. You know, police officers have a way of, of do- ruining great adventures. Yes, church, you know. <laughs> so, um, and basically, I, I remember distinctly. You know, even though I was only five at the time, thinking I just need to know. What is around that corner, you know? And then I would get around that corner, and I'd be—I just need to know what is around the next corner. And you know, it's funny how the way we are at age five is often the way we are at age forty-five, you know. And and I haven't—I haven't lost that uh, that sense of adventure and exploration, really. I would say. That's terrific. I mean, that and that that really comes through um, in your writing and your thinking. I'd love if you could talk a little bit about your early experiences as a journalist. And, and one of the things that I've heard you uh, speak about that I find very compelling is your description of how journalism can often just be so focused on the negative and, uh, and how, you know, I think you, you have described yourself as a grumpy person and even a person that um, at some times may have been 
predisposed to depression, as I think many of us are. Yes. And I wondered how your reflection on how perhaps your experience as a journalist may have contributed to that. Just a little framing on this. I, I My mother is 88 years old, and I had a very funny conversation with her a few weeks ago where she told me she cannot watch the news anymore because it makes her so depressed and sad. So mm. uh, I, I just thought, you know, maybe if you could tell that part of your journey, okay. how it forms the right. family. Well, you know, I, I became a, a journalist partly, I think, as an extension of this desire that I just mentioned to explore the world, uh, the world out there. And, you know, once I got into journalism, uh, it was pretty clear to me that I, I really wanted to go overseas as a foreign correspondent. For me... That was the creme de la creme of journalism. That's, you know, if, you, if you're going to explore other worlds, uh, what better way to do it than as a foreign correspondent? And, uh, you know, I was, I was very fortunate to be at the time working at NPR, and there was a foreign editor at the time named Elizabeth Becker, who was herself a, a big expert on, on Cambodia. And I just basically kept bugging her, you know, until finally she said, okay, why don't you go to India? Um, in, in NPR, I'd never had a full-time correspondent in India. This is, you know, back in the in the early and mid-90s when India was not quite the, the powerhouse it is today. Uh, in fact, not, not at all, really. It was still very much in India that we associated almost exclusively with poverty and snake charmers and that sort of thing. So I packed my bags and I ended up in uh, in New Delhi for the first time, uh, not visiting, but living there. And uh, it was, I can honestly say, the best few years of my life. Um, but, you know, it, it, I continued uh, different postings to Jerusalem and Tokyo, but increasingly, you know, I began to feel that the only thing that qualifies as news is bad news. You know, there's a very cynical uh, saying among journalists that you might be familiar with, if it bleeds, it leads. You yes, know? yes. And, and, you know, that's sort of especially true overseas, well, it's especially true in the Middle East. Um, and I just, you know, I sort of woke up one morning thinking, you know, here I am, someone already predisposed towards negativity and even mild depression and... And what am I doing but focusing on the worst of the world? Uh, this isn't something I could really share with fellow journalists because it's just sort of a, a given. It's like, you know, complaining to doctors about, oh, there's so much blood in our business. You know? <laughs> it's like nobody – so why do you have to deal with all these sick people? You know, <laughs> Nobody wants to hear that. So um, it just sort of stewed inside of me, this idea um, – and, and this is concern really that, that – I was just focusing on the negative, waking up every day and saying to myself, essentially, what is the most miserable part of the world, or at least my part of the world, my patch I've been assigned to cover? Uh, how can I get to that miserable place as quickly as possible? And then once I'm on the ground, how can I find the most miserable inhabitants of this miserable land? So and I'm, I'm being sort of kidding, but sort of serious here. You know, are they victims of disease, famine, refugees? And now, okay, I found a refugee uh, who's suffering from disease. Let's hang out with him for a long period of time uh, and tell his story. And it is important to tell a story, and that work is important. But it's sort of become what journalism is to the exclusion of anything else. So I, one morning I woke up and I had this sort of light bulb moment. You know, what if instead of looking for the most miserable people and places in the world, what if I looked for the happiest places and spent a year traveling to these places and trying to mine them for lessons 
lessons for myself, frankly, into how I could be happier and and fend off depression, and lessons for all of us about how we might uh, build a, a happier place. And then I had a second light bulb moment, which went like this. What if I got NPR to pay for me to travel around the world for a year looking for the happiest places? And uh, the second light bulb moment didn't turn out so well. NPR wasn't, wasn't interested in that because they are a journalist organization. And happiness is not something that they're going to allow a correspondent to pursue full time for a year. I, I get that. Um, fortunately, there was a, a wonderful book publisher who liked the idea. And, and I was off and running, as they say. That's uh, I th- that, that particular story is very fascinating to me because it, it ties into this, what I almost think of as a movement in, in journalism and thinking, which is, uh, you're, I'm sure you're familiar with David Bornstein and the whole concept yes. of, you know, solutions journalism and this idea. I, of, I, met, I met David Bornstein in a guest house in Bangladesh, in Dhaka. In 1994, and he was not, you know, he was not the solutions fix-it guy at the time. He was just some young, we were both young at the time. Um, and he was, what was he doing in Bangladesh, do you think? You want to hazard a guess? Uh, studying something that had gone wrong. <laughs> no, he was actually studying something that went right. Oh, there you go. Okay, so it was the, the, the something called the Grameen Bank. Uh, yes, okay, uh, okay, sure, and, sure. And, and a man named Muhammad Yunus, who went on to win the Nobel Prize, we were both there, you know, doing positive stories in Bangladesh. Um, That's great. And uh, yeah, and I was, and and I, I was, we both were sort of on the same wavelength about that. And um, that's just one example, you know. The Grameen banks really started, perfected the concept of micro micro lending. Um, and it's a huge success story in in Bangladesh. And um, and I, I think there is, you're right, there is this, this movement towards solutions journalism. And there's, there's always pushback I get with my colleagues in, in journalism who are like, well, so you just want to tell the good news. If you want to read a newspaper with only good news, go to North Korea. You know, that's, that's the standard comeback. And I, I just, that, I find that infuriating because there's a way to write about solutions and about positive stuff for lack of a better word in an intelligent and critical way you know just because you're writing about good news doesn't mean you're you're a sucker you know <clears throat> there's a way to do it in a in an intelligent way that that um that's worthwhile well a- absolutely and i think you know i think one of the and i really enjoyed your book in this regard because it is it is sort of a a reflection and a thoughtful um exploration of of what works and and how things can work as opposed to that you know just thoroughgoing focus on the negative that we often find in the media um and i think it is it is a lot about framing because you know there's so many things in the world that go right every day as well as things that go wrong every day and it's sort of like well what are you attuned to observing and this ties into one of the key ideas in your book that I'd love you to just talk for a few minutes about, because I think it's something that we all know, but we lose sight of, and that is this extraordinary impact of culture on, on happiness and how, you know, you, you talk about it in the sense that place really does matter to your, fundament, to your fundamental um, state of equilibrium and, and your outlook on the world. Can you talk with us a little bit about that? I think it's a key idea in the book. Yeah. Um we we don't we we often when we think of happiness we think of it as an entirely interior process right it is something that happens inside of us 
and has basically nothing to do with our environment. You know, you can be happy anywhere is something we, we believe in. Um, I don't think that's true. Um, I, I really believe in the hidden power of culture. And by culture, I mean sort of our, our national culture, social culture, um, this sort of rules of the game that we're not even aware of because we've been playing the game for so long. Um, one way I, I like to think of it is, you know, we're like fish in the water. The fish is not aware that they're in water. It's only if you catch a fish and grab it out of the water that it's like, oh, that's where that's what I was right. in water. Right. Um, so culture is is the water, right? And we're not we're not aware of it. We're not aware of how it affects us. We're not aware of how we need it uh, until we're out of it, right? And that's one of I think the the biggest benefits of travel. Um, well, it's twofold. One is you can you can step out of your water into someone else's body of water and see it more clearly because it's all fresh to you. And then you can return to your own body of water, your own culture, and see it again. Uh, and I'm going to butcher T.S. Eliot here, but uh, seeing it as if for the first time. Um, he said it a bit more eloquently, but that's the idea. You, you, you come back to your own culture and you see it fresh as if for the first time. Um, so getting back to happiness and tying this together, uh, I, I think that we have internalized our culture. You know, I, I have a friend who runs a landscaping business, um, and she call her motto is bringing the outside in, and I, I love that. You know, because it's really what uh, what we do all the time is we bring the outside in. We we internalize these cultural ethos, and we're not aware of it, but we do. Um, so often this takes the form of, of myths, you know, Horatio Alger myths, anyone can make it, um, myths that in individualism, which are very big in this country, um, and I don't mean myths as in falsehoods, but myths as in the way Joseph Campbell meant it, which is, these are sort of inspiring stories that, that motivate us, you know, myths in a positive sense, um, but every culture has them, uh, and they determine our, our, our happiness in a lot of ways, you know, and also there's this notion of cultural fit, right? So I lived in Japan for a number of years, and Japan, I would say, is a very introverted country. Um, the culture is introverted. Um, so if you are naturally an introverted, personally, you're probably going to fit in in Japan. But if you're a very extroverted person, a Japanese person, um, you're probably always going to rub and brush against the culture. Uh, and you might become one of those Japanese expatriates who feels more at home in New York or in London or someplace else than you do at home. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, that is sort of the, the thesis for my entire book. And in a way, my the, the books I continue to write is this hidden power of culture uh, to affect our lives, sometimes negatively, but more often in positive ways. Uh, another fascinating idea in your book t to me, and um, it it flows right out of this concept of focusing on culture, is this um, idea about how culture affects our expectations. And, and you, you had a very uh, funny um, expression. Uh, you talked about the unhappiness of not being happy, <laughs> which right. I thought was ver a very compelling idea and something that we do see enormously in our culture. You know, the right. idea that this expectation that, well, we should, we should have all this happiness and we don't. Um, but it comes out in your book in so many interesting ways. Uh, another way to me that 
was fascinating was just what I would describe as the surprising happiness of the northern places. You know, these places that have have no um, you know no light and it's freezing cold and life is very hard, but uh, somehow they they are very happy. And and I think there's something in there about how uh, expectations are framed. Interestingly, I think it also ties into some of what you write about in some of the Asian cultures where a lowered expectation or no expectation <clears throat> has an impact on happiness. I would say more, yeah. much more no expectation yeah. than lowered expectations yeah. because you know, you start talking about expectations like this and people get bristly and Americans do. Let me be clear about that because if you, if you say let's lower our expectations, that sounds to people like a cop-out. Right? It sounds like let's not try, let's not aim high. Um, the Eastern view, the Asian view, you know, this is very much tied in, in with Buddhism and Hinduism and and, and, and these Asian-based religions, um, is you give 100% effort to whatever it is you're doing and you have 0% invested in the result, um, which for us sounds impossible or even absurd, uh, but it's not. Um, the idea is, you're, yes, you care, yes, you're trying, um, but your happiness is not directly pegged to a particular outcome. The minute we peg our happiness to a particular outcome, we are setting ourselves up for disappointment and therefore unhappiness. Um, one of the happiest countries in, in the world is Denmark. And the Danes, of course, are in a northern climate, as you mentioned as well, not, not exactly a tropical paradise. And also, um, in surveys, the Danes consistently rank as, uh, among Europeans at least, the ones with the lowest expectations. Uh, about the future and they're also the happiest country in Europe in the world in many surveys um, so what's going on there clearly you know Denmark is a first world functioning highly livable country and yet they have the lowest expectations um, so I think there, there definitely is something to that and the unhappiness of not being happy as I write is you know it is this notion that we have we have sort of gone in this country from the idea that everyone can be happy to everybody should be happy. And that's a big and dangerous leap, you know. Yeah. That's, that's you know, it's one thing to say you have the right to, you know, to pursue happiness. It's another thing to say you have an entitlement to happiness. And if you're not, something's wrong with you. And you know what? Um, I don't know anyone who's happy all the time. And frankly, I guess I've met a few people um, you know, I ask people as I, as I travel just for fun, you know, what's your, what's your, what's your happiness level? This is what researchers do. And I do it in a more informal way just to sort of get the conversation going on a scale of one to 10 with one being miserable and 10 being, you know, you know, Dalai Lama or Oprah levels of happiness, you know, just right. off the charts, you know, <laughs> overall in your life. And, um, I don't trust anyone who says 10, frankly, to be right, honest, right. Um, because uh, it doesn't allow room for improvement. And, and really, all the time, not, not all the time, but overall, you're going you're gonna to rank that high. Um, so, yeah, 
Um, I, I, I find a link to this idea also in the sense of gratitude that you often experience from people who are happy and that feeling of gratitude, which I often associate with, uh, with um, having a strong spiritual sense or, or faithfulness, um, that people, people who show gratitude in their lives do have no expectations or reduced expectations in the sense that they always feel like, hey, the glass is always half full. And I think that's kind of interesting, that, that um, connection. Or maybe they're not, they're not looking at the glass all the time. Yeah, you know? exactly. I mean, it's, it's, if, you're, if you're spending all, t- all your time measuring, is it half full? Is it half empty? It seems a little less full than, half full than yesterday. I mean, yeah. if, you're not even, if you're not even going there, <laughs> that, that might be, uh, you know. Even better. better. Yeah, I think if you ask a really ha- happy person or the, the, if you ask the Dalai Lama, you know, if the glass was half full or half empty, he might say the glass isn't real anyway. <laughs> don't, you know? yeah, don't focus on the glass. Right. <laughs> or, you know, the Buddhists have an expression, the glass is already broken. The uh, glass is already broken. There you right. go. Yeah. So, um, you know, that, that half full, half empty trope is, is, is a very Western idea. And it's, there are other ways of looking at things, but yes. This Innovate series features dialogue with some of the most influential advocates for changing our world, from the CEOs and founders of major nonprofits to the directors of cultural and academic institutions. Innovate demonstrates the vital role of empathy as an agent for that change. Innovate and Aspire are produced in partnership with Ashoka, Innovators for the Public, the Kellogg Fellows Leadership Alliance, and the Philadelphia Social Innovations Journal, and presented by Arch Street Press and the Public Radio Exchange. We now return to our Innovate interview with David Castro and Eric Weiner, award-winning journalist and New York Times best-selling author. The another uh, angle that you explore, which I think is powerful, is the concept of happiness. You know, not being personal, but rather relational, and this idea that the way I sort of think about it is that happiness arises out of this feeling of belonging. Um, one story that you tell, which t- to me illustrates this, I wonder how you see it, but the story of the guy in Iceland, I think his name is Jared, who talks about, uh, and, and it turns out that he's, you know, he's, um, he's a transplant to I- Iceland. Right, right. But it's actually just fallen, completely fallen in love with the culture and right. feels this, this sense of being where he's supposed to be at home. And um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that, because I think it's one of your sort of deep insights about this this relational element of happiness, how, how critical it is. Right. Um, well, I first um, heard this idea from uh, a man named Karma. Uh, I like the way that sounds. A man named Karma Ora uh, in the country of Bhutan, uh, in the Himalayas. He, he said to me, he said, Eric is... I don't understand when you Americans talk about your personal happiness. He says, that makes no sense to me. Happiness, he said, is 100% relational. And at first I thought, wow, 100%, that's, that seems high. Maybe he's just he's exaggerating to make a point. Um, and the more I traveled and the more I, I, I researched uh, and read about the, the subject, um, the more I began to realize that karma meant exactly what he said, that happiness is 100% relational. 
that the minute you begin to frame the question in terms of how how is my personal happiness, the minute you begin to look at it in that way, uh, you're lost because uh, you're atomizing yourself. You're cutting yourself off from the world around you. And when I say happiness is 100% relational, I, I don't mean it's, you know, in, in a romantic sense, you know, it's whether you're getting along with your husband or wife or boyfriend or girlfriend or whoever. Um, it's, it's just a way of thinking about yourself in relation to the rest of the world, in relation to other people, absolutely, in relation to nature, um, in relation uh, to the universe, if you want to get metaphysical about it, it's an orientation. Um, now, there's sort of two get two questions in there, really, because that that's sort of the question. I think of happiness. Well, I guess they're tied together, actually. Um, let's talk about Jared, who you mentioned, the, uh, yeah. the young man I met in, in Reykjavik in Iceland. And he was a, a transplant, or what I call a hedonic refugee. Now, what I mean by that is... Um, you know, people are refugees for all sorts of reasons. They're economic refugees who will move somewhere uh, in order to make a better living. That's quite common. They're uh, political refugees who are oppressed in their home country. And then there are hedonic or happiness refugees, people who just feel happier in a different place, in a different culture from the one in which they were born. And Jared is one of those people. Um, he had a brief stopover in Iceland for like day or two on his way to Europe, which is really where he was going, but he couldn't, he, he fell in love with Iceland in that day or two, and he and he moved back there, and he got a job and moved there, and he explained to me at some length, in depth, what it is he loved about Iceland, and how he just felt more at home there, and I believe there are people like that, who just uh, fit in better, from a happiness point of view, in a different place, and it, it ties together with what we're talking about, happiness being relational, because uh, I guess Jared finds the constellation of sociability more to his liking in Iceland, the way people relate to each other in a more honest way, perhaps, or in a different way from the way they did in, in Boston, where he lived before. Um, so, so yeah, some of us, it doesn't mean all of us should pick up and move to Iceland, Um they would first of all, you know, it's only a country of three hundred thousand people. That would be problematic. Um, you know, we can we can sort of incorporate those lessons here. But for some people, um, yeah, they're going to be happier in a different culture. They're just gonna it's going to be a better fit for them. And what I took away from it was really this idea of how integral belonging is. And I think it's one of the reasons why people often, when you ask them about being happy, they they start to think about their family and being around family can make people happy, although it doesn't always, obviously. But, um, you know, right. that feeling of being part of something and knowing that you belong there can be, you know, a, a right. baseline. And some, you know, there's something uh, called the Latino bonus, which is the notion that Latin American countries are, uh, quote-unquote, happier than they should be based on levels of economic growth or democracy, etc. And uh, social scientists sort of scratch their head on this, and the, the sort of tentative conclusion is that the extended families and family life there um, is, is one reason for it. Um, you know, uh, it's also true in Iceland, and I talked to one Icelandic uh, film producer who said to me, well, in Iceland, you never have to worry uh, about falling into a black hole. You know, there are no black holes to fall into. There's, there's always someone there to catch you. 
Right. Not, not, when I'm not talking about government social safety nets per se, they're actually weaker in Iceland than they are in, in the rest of Western Europe. Um, somebody, you know, in, in the way that in a small town, in the sort of Norman Rockwell small version of a small town, everyone's got everyone else's back. Um, but I think in today's world in this country, and I'd be curious whether you agree with this or not, um, it's it's easy to fall into a black hole and 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 not no one notice. Um, there was a sad, tragic story in the news just a few weeks ago. I don't know if you saw it about a woman who had died in her house and had been there for years. Uh, did you hear about this? Yes, uh, yes, I did. Yes, right. And and they and she had her bills on auto pay and and so um, bills kept being paid and it was a number of years before they found the body. Um, that would not happen in in Iceland. No, right. somebody would notice. Hey, you know, uh, where's Hilmar? We haven't seen Hilmar in a few days. Let's go check on him. Um, it, it's uh, there are a lot more cracks and black holes in this country, uh, and a lot of you know highly individualistic countries uh, right. that we can fall into. Well, it's one of those things that I think also um, arises. It, it's part of the idea of why countries that can be somewhat more homogenous, you know, like uh, in in the north or in Iceland, for example, where probably there is less diversity than there is um, certainly in the United States. But that sense of cohesion that people have, you know, again, creates that sense of belonging. And, and often, I, I, uh, yeah, David, I would use the word trust, too. Trust, yes. Trust is, um, it's sort of the one non-negotiable for a happy place, I, I found, Um the degree, if you want to see how happy a place is, you look at the degree of trust and look at how people answer the, the following question. Um, and it's purposefully a sort of open-ended question. Uh, and here it is. Overall, most people can be trusted. Do you agree or disagree? So, yes. Ah, wow. And uh, I think I know that in countries where the answer yes to that question, overall, most people can be trusted. You're going to find people are happier. And how is that? How do Americans answer that question? Well, that's interesting. Is that there's been a sharp decline in the, in, in a change in the response. You know, you go back to the 1960s, and two thirds of Americans answered yes. Overall, most people can be trusted. Um, and they did the survey just much more recently, and it had changed dramatically. And two thirds of Americans now say no. Overall, most people cannot be trusted. Um, that's a big change, and I don't think it bodes well for for happiness in this country. And it seems to be deeply linked to what we see in our 24-hour news cycle, which is, you know, a constant – I mean, I, I sort of reflected a few years back on, you know, okay, you're watching this 24-hour news cycle that pump, pumps out all kinds of political controversy, the tragedies that happen to people, you know, mass murderers, and then you go, you know, and then your entertainment is CSI, like Miami, New York, whatever, and it's all about lots of ser serial lots of killers. Bodies. Yeah, yeah right. exactly. And, and, you know, I mean, who could, and then you've got 24, you know, and, and the culture just is, is American culture at any rate, it just seems to be a nonstop machine putting out reasons to be in fear. Yeah, I mean, there there is some truth to that. There, you know, I think uh, uh, I guess I take some exception with CSI. That is, you know, that's a good mystery, and and we all love a good mystery. Um, but getting things to work is also a, a mystery, and that's really, you know, what I try to do in my writing, and it's kind of, it's a it's a tricky thing to pull off, is to create a sense of mystery in something good. 
Um, and if I could talk just for a second about my current project, which is a, a geography of genius, I'm looking at uh, places that worked out over the course of history, <clears throat> excuse me, from ancient Athens <clears throat> to Silicon Valley, there have been these little genius clusters <clears throat> where you've had, you know, Michelangelo and Leonardo living in the same city in Florence, Italy at the same time, uh, Sigmund Freud and and uh, the philosopher Wittgenstein and the, the composer Mahler all living in Vienna at the same time. So what what happened in these places that they worked out? And that that is that is a mystery. It's a sort of multi-layered mystery in every bit of a sense that, that CSI is a mystery. Except instead of looking for the dead body or who killed the person, I'm looking for why did this work out? And I think if if we're able to bring that, that sort of tension, that sense of suspense to good news, it can be compelling to watch. Because I think if you... If you say, and I totally agree with you, that they're, they're, we're pumping out this negativity 24-7, but then, okay, what do you, what to do about that? And if your response is, let's just have the good news channel and let's just show good news all the time, um, people are going to suspect you of being a propagandist or a communist or um, or just, you know, on drugs. I don't know. So, this, so uh, yeah, go ahead. That's a fascinating, I mean, first of all, that project sounds equally fascinating, and I hope that we can have you back to talk at length about that project. I do think there's a really interesting way to link that project to this conversation, though, and I and I did have this question, which is really about American culture. Reading your book made me really think about this phrase uh, from the Declaration of Independence, you know, about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the, one of my own experiences in working with creative people is is the the idea about being very you know happy in the pursuit of something, but then cold once you've achieved it, that thing of the aftermath of, of the big success. And it turns out that I think, at least for, in my experience, and I think with a lot of people that I've worked with who are creative, and I interview a ton of social entrepreneurs, that people are people are very inspired and animated and often in a, in a state of um, bliss when they're in the process of pursuing something. And I imagine that's something that we do see in communities of genius where people are really creating intensively together in a community. Did you, do you see that in your work? Yeah. I mean, they found that people are happiest just before completing something big, just before that, that moment of completion. Um, and you're right. There is, there is a letdown afterwards. Um, you know, there, there's this concept of flow. Have you heard of flow? Yes. um, Right, so a psychologist with a very long name, uh, Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi, um, developed it, and it's really an extension of uh, Ram Dass's "Be Here Now," you know. But it's 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 couched in in, in psych- psychological terms, and it's fully fleshed out. But it's the idea that when we are fully engaged in an activity, when we're really in sync with it, um, we lose sense of time. And we even lose sense of ourselves, so that um, there's no dancer, there's only dancing. Uh, there's no writer, there's only writing. You know, we become the verb. And I think that's what you're talking about. Um, and it can happen on an individual level, and it can happen on a group level. When you're uh, in a group of highly creative people, they um, when they're in sync, it's it's like a dance, and they're and and no one's you know watching the clock. 
and no one's particularly aware of themselves either. Um, that's pretty rare, I have to say, especially in a group level, um, because you have competing agendas and everything else. Um, but I think what we're talking about here essentially is flow, and in, in that when you're lost in that, um, you do your, your best work. But you're not thinking, hey, I'm doing my best work, because as, as minute, the minute you think that, you're, you're toast, you know. It's like if you've ever stopped, I don't know if you've, been, if you've had a good day recently. Uh, have yes, you? I have. Okay. <laughs> yeah, okay. Probably if you stopped and thought, wow, I'm just really having a good day. Um, you probably went downhill from there because you became aware of and self-conscious of, of the good day you were having. Uh, that's not a question. You, you could express gratitude sort of for the feeling of things seem to be going well. But the minute you start to pick apart I'm having a good day. I wonder why that is, you know, or this is going well. I wonder why that is, you know, you're really, um, you've, you've lost it at that point. Um, it's like the, you know, the dancer or the athlete who suddenly becomes self-conscious of, oh, I'm really the tennis player. I'm hitting the ball well today. Well, all of a sudden they're not, you know? So I, I think truly creative, and I guess you're right. This is where sort of creativity and happiness overlap is both, activities, states of mind, whatever you want to call it, require uh, a lack of self-consciousness. And I think if you look at most geniuses throughout history, and then as I researched this, I've discovered that they lack this self-consciousness. They didn't give a flying frog what other people thought of them. Just look right. at Einstein's hair. I mean, right. there's a man who did not spend a lot of time caring what other people thought, you know? Right. So, and you hear about how Steve Jobs didn't have time to flush the toilets in his house. Right. I mean, it's, it's, yeah. And this makes him difficult to live with too, but, <laughs> but if you're lost in flow, you're lost in flow. Um, and you know, that, I don't think you have to be a mean spirited person to be a genius. I think that's counterproductive. Um, but if you're always if you always have your finger to the wind, you know, then you're you're never going to get anything done that worthwhile and unique. So at the beginning of the interview, I, I said that you're a philosopher, and I really do I really do think you you are a philosopher, and uh, and the um, I think one interesting really interesting thing about this dialogue is that we've come to a question I think that sort of ties together in some ways all three of these books that the two that you have out and and one that is 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 in is in the works and I'd like to see if I can frame this question for you and then maybe have you you riff about that a little bit and then I really do hope that you'll consider coming back and talking with us again but um, but the here, here's my question um, and I think this was a very provocative part of the, the bliss book this thought experiment about the happiness machine Right. Which really gets you to, I'd like you to describe that, but then also, if you can, I'd like you to comment on what you think it has to do with the role of meaning in all of this, which t t to me ties in also to some of the work that you've done thinking about spirituality, and then of course into these communities that are focused on creativity, where people are really organized around, they're organized around a purpose. So talk if you could talk about the happiness machine and then sort of riff right well it's, it's a very it's a very uh simple thought experiment so you uh picture yourself lying down uh and attached to this machine and the machine is you know perfectly safe fda approved safe anyway that's a joke um and um and um 
And this machine just fills you with, with bliss and happiness uh, all the time, constantly. You don't have to do anything. It's safe. And it just makes you feel happy all the time. You know, would you want to be attached to this machine for the rest of your life? And I ask this question when I give talks to groups and meet people. And most people say no, which I find very telling. Because we always say, I just want to be happy or I just want my children to be happy. But we don't really, you know. And this is sort of the, the conclusion I reach after traveling the world looking for the happiest places and the meaning of happiness is that, you know, we don't want to be attached to the happiness machine. We don't want uh, unearned happiness. You know, we, we, we not only do we want to, you know, have bad days so we can appreciate the good ones, but there we want to appreciate the bad ones too in a, in a, in a strange way. We want, you know, grit and truth and earthiness uh, and even what I would call genuine suffering in our life. You know, I forget who it was. I think it may have, I think it was Freud who said that basically neuroses is a, is an absence of genuine suffering. It's a synthetic suffering, right? <laughs> right. Um, and, 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 and the difference between that and, and genuine suffering the kind that leads to, to good art or to social change, that I think is, is good suffering. The kind of suffering that just, you know, uh, turns you in on yourself uh, is bad suffering, neuro neuroses. So uh, we want good suffering, we want truth, we want um, meaning, as you say, and purpose. And, uh, and I think... And I'm going to use the L word, too. I think we want love, which is a, a, a tricky subject in this culture. Um, but I was, you know, I was in India and researching the book, and I was attending a, uh, a talk by a, a, a guru there. And you had a chance to answer, to write, answer, ask him a question, to write it on a scrap of paper. And there were hundreds of people in this room. And I put the, my question down, and they were chosen randomly, and somehow mine was chosen first. And my question was whether there was anything greater in life than happiness. And he answered immediately, and he said, yes, love, ah. um, which was not telling. And um, you know, I know that's not in social science parlance. It's, it's sort of frowned upon. It's such a mushy, squishy word. Um, but you know, why, why do social entrepreneurs do what they do, uh, if not for, for love of fellow man? Um, and I think to be, to be useful, you know, I remember I met uh, an audiologist who would you know, spend all his vacations going to developing countries, poor places, and fitting people with hearing aids there. And I asked him why he did it. He said, well, I just want to be useful, to be, to be used up, you know. And I think, you know, I think that's why, um, you know, if a young person goes to a sort of older mentor and asks for help, the person will often help. And now that I'm a bit older, I find myself doing that. I'll help some 20-something-year-old um, who's looking for a job in NPR or a career in journalism. I'll point them in directions. And I, have, I, get, I get absolutely nothing out of it. They're not going to, you know, there's no payback, quid pro quo. <clears throat> and I realize when I stop to think, why do I do it? It's because... We like to be useful. We like to to see our imprint on the world, hopefully in a positive way. Sure, and that and that also 
is so critical to the creation of community. It's that it's that interaction in which we help one another, and that that gives us our sense of belonging. So it's really like a it's really like a whole integrated integrated sense of what it is that makes you happy. Right, I would agree. Well. Eric, thank you so much for joining us today, and, and I want to encourage our listeners to go and discover your website, um, which is ericweiner.com. Do I have that right? Uh, no, Eric it's ericweinerbooks.com. Ericweinerbooks.com. E-R-I-C-W-E-I-N-E-R books.com, or right. just Google it, and I will pop up. We will put um, up. It's been, it's been a real pleasure. Appreciate it. Yeah, we'll put up links to that and links to the books, and, uh, and I really look forward to having you join us again. Thank you so much. It would, it would be my pleasure. So uh, be happy, but not too happy, okay? You bet. Thank you for joining us today. Our library of interviews and a range of further resources may be found at archstreetpress.org or prx.org.